Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through their legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation from a breezy, sunny summer day in LA. I do want to start with a disclaimer today that we will be talking about some sensitive subjects. So I will put it out there for you to listen with discretion if there's anything that's uh, going to trigger you. So, But today I have truly an amazing guest. I, I'm just absolutely thrilled. I'm honored. She's what you would call a homicide survivor, similar to my very first guest for the podcast, Pam Griffiths, whose brother was murdered in Florida. But uh, my guest's husband was actually murdered, and her story is not only moving, but it's astonishing on how she's had to and gotten through navigating through the legal system, experiencing such a traumatic experience, and how to protect herself from the media. Um, the police, and just really an incredible journey that I'm just, again, honored. She's written two books that are actually available on Amazon. Uh, her first book is was in 2020 called A Life Divided, a book that speaks about the invisible families and the shadows of gruesome homicides, who know all too well what the headlines, sound bites, legal formalities can do to a person. Her second book, Now What?, Navigating the Aftermath of a Homicide or Suicide in 2023, which is recent. This is more of a reference book uh, written for homicide, suicide survivors, first responders, secondary responders, friends, family. It's organized sequentially, starting with like death notification and going through the process, going to court, grief response, wrongful convictions. I mean, it's just absolutely, absolutely incredible. I've barely got to skim through that, but that just really is a, an amazing feet in its own self. And on top of this, she has a very successful podcast called The Domino Effect of Murder. And she and her guests talk about the backstories um, after the police leave, the headlines stop, news footage is, you know, stopped, and what the personal fallouts are from responders. But one of my favorite quotes of hers that I've just adored is that there are so many more victims than the ones that are taken to the morgue. Yet there is hope, and that's one reason I'm so excited to welcome Jan Canty to my show today. Jan, thank you so much. I'm honored for you to come and talk to me. Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> well, that's the least I could do. I I, uh, I, <laughs> I I could have done more, but I I I don't know where to start. I'm just so honored to talk to you. So, can you tell us a little bit about your story and why it? kind of like why it took you 30 years to come out of hiding with your life, write your first book and, and your account. As briefly as I can state it, back in 1985, my husband failed to come home. We were married 11 years at that point. He was 18 years my senior. He was a psychologist. He'd always been very punctual. That particular day, it was a very stormy day with hail and rain and lightning and a miserable 
humid, hot summer day. So when he didn't come home for dinner, I just dismissed it as to the weather because back in 85, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the internet. So there was Mm -hmm. no real easy way to check. But he didn't come home that night or the next night or then ever again. And in 10 days, I found myself sitting across from Inspector Gil Hill, who was the lead person in the homicide unit in the Detroit Police Headquarters. And he's a very... Uh, sh- he's very short on words, very to the point. Right. And for a visual, he played the detective of on uh, Beverly Hills Cop, Eddie Murphy's boss, and he's just like that in real life, <laughs> kind of scowling and intense. And he basically said, you know, we got your missing persons report, we followed it up, and we found your husband buried in a bog in northern Michigan in three different parcels. We flew the remains back to the Detroit morgue last night, and Mm -hmm. Detective Landeros will usher you over to identify him for Mm -hmm. court. I mean, it was real cut and dry. Yeah, cut and dry. And obviously... And she did. Black and white. Shocking. Mm -hmm. One day, Mm -hmm. everything's normal. The next 10 days later, you're in this process of um, just obviously traumatic, traumatic process. And how did you... um, when you when you started to walk through the process, I mean, obviously there was a legal aspect right out of the box, right? I mean, this is what this why my show's about is, but I know you didn't really have a lot to do with that. So, would you can you tell me like how did you actually respond? Did they question you at first? Did they what was your connection with the legal at, at the very beginning? With Inspector Gil Hill, he just asked me a few pointed questions, which a lot of them didn't make sense to me, like. Have you suspected money problems? I'm like, what does that got to do with my missing husband? And I asked my parents to come in, and he said yes. I, I think he liked that. I think I gave him, I didn't think about it this way at the time, but I think mm-hmm. it gave him more information to see my parents with me. And um, he had, I, I, I learned out, I, I learned a lot more years later, but at, at the time as it was unfolding, I was just there to gather information from him. And in the process, of course, he was gathering information from me, but that wasn't where my head was at at the Mm -hmm. time. So at this moment in time, I just sought him as a helper, a desperate call for where's my husband. Mm -hmm. And um, he was all focused on the investigation and going to court. I didn't know then how much he knew. He, He had the whole thing sewed up pretty much. He had the people arrested. He knew who had done it. He had uh, all the evidence that anybody could want and then some, but I had no knowledge of any of that. So Detective Landeros was uh, an amazing individual, but she was tasked, I saw, I figured out later, she was tasked with making sure I showed up at the preliminary exam mm-hmm. and that the, the identification process went perfectly because back in 1985, DNA wasn't it wasn't right. what it is today, and you had to have a body for a conviction. Right. And I don't know that she really needed my testimony at the prelim to say yes, that was what I that was him that I saw at the morgue. I really think what it, looking back, what I think it was was a strategy as an excuse to get me on the witness stand because I had no knowledge of what happened. They couldn't right. ask me about anything. So they had to have a reason to bring me in. And I think that's what it was, is so I could describe what I saw at the morgue. Mm -hmm. 
So she told me the date of the prelim, and I got subpoenaed, so I had no choice to right. go. I otherwise would not have gone, right. and I told her that. But she uh, met me uh, at the doors, and it's a big, huge building, a uh, big, big courthouse with lots going on. And there was a security screening, which was at the very beginning of the building, mm -hmm. which wasn't surprising. Mm -hmm. But there was a secondary screening at the door room of the court, which oh. wasn't typical. Mm -hmm. I was the first to testify. I had no meeting with the DA. I just mm -hmm. walked in the courtroom and walked up to the witness stand. That was mm -hmm. basically it, except for one brief sidebar where the the uh, defense attorney said he would stipulate to my testimony. And I think, I, I remember thinking at the time, he's trying to get me out of here. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, I'm like, I have moved my life to be here at this moment, mm -hmm. and I'm going to testify. And I told the DA that. I said, I moved heaven and hell to make sure I'm in here. And this case doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to the state of Michigan. It doesn't belong to the defense attorney. It belongs to me. I know you don't see it that way, but I do. Right, right. So I'm going to get on that witness stand, and I'm going to answer your questions. And he said, okay. Yeah, that's uh but the quest the questions were really weird. But, yeah, right. <laughs> but I, but it was it was my first in introduction, my first awareness to what now seems obvious that we're not wanted in the courtroom. Right. Uh, homicide survivors are a nuisance. Yes, I was going to say that's a strategy that I've seen used um not in my own personal cases, but I've seen used in other places where they don't want the grieving widow. They don't want the grieving family. There's that's unfortunately um, it is tough on everybody, but they they find it to be harder, you know, a little bit more prejudicial with the jury. But you're, I love your point. It's yours. It's it's not theirs. It's uh, I, I and I I said to him after the fact. I said, Are you going to be dealing with this twenty years from now? Are you going to be cleaning out his clothes closet? Are you going to be having to sell your house? Right. Are you going to be having to answer questions for the end of your life? Right. I will. That's why I say this case belongs to me and not you. Because right. time when this case is over, you're going to move on to the next one. I won't. Right. This is your whole so life. So we didn't see eye to eye from the get-go. Right. And I was not subpoenaed to go to the trial, and I chose not to go because I thought, what's it going to change? I'll still be a widow. I'll still be broke because my husband had given away all our money. I still have a house to sell. I still have the media following me. I'd still trying to try to find a way to sleep. Mm -hmm. None of that's going to be changed in a court of law. And right. furthermore, I did not want to supply the media with any more uh, footage because, as it was, they were there outside the morgue. They were they disrupted mm -hmm. his funeral. Mm -hmm. They followed me home. They waited outside my office. They took my picture against my will. Mm -hmm. They and they published facts which were nobody's business. Like on the front page, they listed. They had a map of where the murder took place, and a map to my house. Oh gosh, yeah, that's so. People started coming by and pointing and getting their picture taken in front of my house and stealing things from outside as souvenirs. We call them death tourists, mm -hmm. and it just kept. It, Every day it was like another layer of complication and with nobody in charge of the whole thing right. because the police weren't thinking about the funeral and the funeral pe people weren't thinking about the media. It's just, it was a right. nightmare. So 
So I, I quickly had to figure out a way to handle it on my own because this is the day before victim advocates even. I was going to say, I didn't think there was victim advocacy at the time. And it was like how to how you navigated no. through that to just try and, like you said, so many parts and pieces coming at you where you're just like media, police, testifying, lawyer, you know, all that type, you know, DA, and how you can mm-hmm. actually, how, how did you, how did you start to, what, what was your first like step to just like say, I got to, I got to dunk, I got to, you know, get out of the limelight or not, not. I called my parents and they flew into town and they, my dad took over the front door and the telephone. Um, I asked the guards in the Fisher building where my office was to not allow the media in. I changed my phone number so many times that I had to write it down. Mm. But ultimately, I, I had to move because it was unrelenting. And I, I did not know then what I know now, which was that the reason it was the media was just so persistent was that one of the reporters wanted to write a book about it. Mm. So any little thing, it was in the news. Yeah. And after 18 months of that, I got sick of it. Yeah, that's, uh, I've seen that too. And it left me, it, you yeah. know, there was no time to grieve. I was just putting out fires. I was trying to figure out where the money situation, how bad was the money situation. And it was bad. I, I, he hadn't filed taxes. He hadn't paid our mortgage. We were kind in car payments. And I had just finished my postdoctoral fellowship. So my income was next to nothing. Mm-hmm. We were $30,000 in debt in 1985 dollars, which is closer to $70,000 today. Mm-hmm. I, so that was just the financial piece, mm-hmm. not to mention the cost of a funeral, the cost of moving. It was like, I got to get five jobs just to break even here. Well, you um, obviously was, had some strength to to find a way, you know, had support system through family. Like if somebody were going through the situation, what would be your first suggestion to them? My first suggestion really would be to go to see your your primary care doctor. Hmm. Because for one thing, if you had pre-existing health conditions like diabetes Mm -hmm. or hypertension, they're going to get worse. Mm -hmm. And even if you're fairly healthy, you're going to have health problems. You're going to have headaches and insomnia and indigestion and uh, you can develop other pro- other kinds of mm-hmm. issues like psoriasis if, if the stress goes on long enough. And why not get in front of that? Because without sleep, nothing else mm-hmm. matters. Mm-hmm. You, you can't function on catnaps for very long. Right. right. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because a lot of people don't believe that stress turns into physical ailment. And it's I'm such oh. a believer of that, that that's where stress turns into physical sickness, cancers, like you said, psoriasis. Every time I meet someone with psoriasis, I, I start to think, wow, they must be under a lot of stress, you know, and there's, mm-hmm. there's science behind all that. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That's such a great piece of advice to sit down and really talk to your doctor on, because that's the first thing my doctor would say to me is, uh, how much stress do you have going on right now? <laughs> like every time I would right. come in with something down. So how, how did you stay healthy? Well, initially I didn't. Uh, my hair fell out and I went into um, premature menopause. I was never able to have children. Uh, I lost a lot of weight. I was down to about 100 pounds, but mm-hmm. I didn't even notice. I, I mm-hmm. frankly didn't even notice it until people started commenting, right? My, I'd be like, my clothes don't fit and why don't they? And Because my mind wasn't on what I was doing. My mind was on the next crisis that I had to deal with. And um, so it was a long time till I felt healthy again. Um, so that was a, an ongoing issue for quite some time. Yeah. 
And did you actually, um, you know, once you started to notice it, did you start physically feeling better? Like, okay, I need to take care of myself or did you have to just get through the, just the wind no. or just the, the over time? Does it? It wasn't a priority for my thinking at the yeah. time. My priority was not having the IRS at my door, not right. having the media in my front living room. Um, right. I was I was often frightened at night because of the cars driving by. Mm -hmm. I didn't know if they'd caught everybody because it was mm -hmm. an ongoing investigation in the beginning. Uh, so my mind initially was was on safety, yeah. and my mind initially was on. Why would he give away our money? I, I had so many unanswered questions. And at that uh, point in history, Detroit had that year, 1985, they had approximately 700 murders. So they had wow. no time for me. It was like, wow. and according to one of the detectives, that was the known homicides. He estimated it was closer to 900. But mm. they didn't have time to deal with me. It was like, you're done next. You know, it was like a factory. So they weren't going to sit down and explain it to me. And I had so many questions, but who do who do I ask? The police right. don't have the time. My husband's the one who's gone. Right. Where do I go to find this information? Where do you go? Right. And it, you know, you bring up a, a good thing that I don't, I don't think we really talked about on this podcast, which is really the influence of the media and the, you know, how much that can take a toll on someone. I mean, I've worked on cases, multiple cases, some I can't talk about that, you know, the media was definitely an issue um, to get. You know, they, I don't know if they think they're getting the truth or they're going to get something that somebody doesn't have. I'm sure that's their, you know, everybody wants that nugget that nobody else knows about. But right. at the same time, the stress that it causes on that person, whether it's a juror, a witness, a family member, um, I mean, it's just something that I don't think many people have talked about. And I maybe need to explore that a little bit more even on this podcast of how the media affects the process. Right and in uh, the person, exactly. the personal process. I mean, obviously you and, saw that. And we don't know what our rights are. I had no idea what to do. I would now, but at the time, I needed them because when he was missing, I did call the local radio station. That's how the media found out. And and I just wanted to say, here's his license plate number. Go find him. Mm -hmm. Here's a picture of right. him. But when they came into my house, my phone rang. Here's just one. There's so many examples of how they had no boundaries. My phone rang, and I had already told them no pictures. But when my phone rang, they took a bunch of pictures and started walking around my house. Oh. I had to stop them from going upstairs. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And when they were at the funeral, arguments broke out between the people mm -hmm. that were there to really say goodbye and the media. because I heard this one guy behind me say, haven't you had enough, you bastards? And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. And so, they so brought what? in those big cameras on their shoulders, yeah. you know. They, well, didn't, they didn't even try to be discreet. Well, 85, those cameras were monster. But the uh, So what, what, what are people's rights in this scenario? What, or what do you know of that are their rights? They have three options. Their, their first option would be to co cooperate as much as you want to. You know, if you want to do that, that's your options. There's pros and cons to each. If you do want to cooperate fully, I recommend that they speak with one reporter of their choosing, somebody that they mm -hmm. like or somebody that's recommended to them, and leave it there and mm -hmm. let everybody else know they've already told their story to person X. 
Gotcha. The middle option is to get a family spokesperson and to tell your family spokesperson, it could be your attorney, a friend, a neighbor, relative, say, these are the things you're allowed to talk about. These are the things that are off limits. You can prepare them a written statement. They can speak off the top of their head. You can say, I do want you to take questions or I don't want you to take questions. But you give them the parameters of what you want and don't want, and then they go out and give their prepared statement or speak spontaneously, and they still have information, but they don't have direct access to you. And then the third option, which is what I did, which is like no contact. Yeah. Now, does that, uh, of those options, does that still, do you still have boundaries of people showing up at your home? Like you said, do you have, oh, yeah. do you have, can still they still be sitting so, out in front of your front yard? Yeah. They can't come, uh, the, you can put no trespassing signs out. You can put a note on your door. And I've recommended that you have neighbors help you. You mm -hmm. could have people that friends, this is, there's so many things that friends can help you with that they don't think about. And this is one of them. Sit in their car out in front of your house mm -hmm. and say they're not answering questions. Go away. Yeah. This concludes part one of my conversation with Jan. Please join me with part two next week as she walks us through the steps one can take when going through a traumatic murder of a loved one. Don't forget, please go out, spread some love. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find your books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts. The content, opinions, and information shared by the hosts and guests on this podcast are not to be considered professional legal advice or therapeutic counseling. If you need assistance, consult with a licensed attorney or therapist if you are appearing as a witness, experiencing emotional trauma, or are involved in any sensitive legal matters. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you. Thank you.